Hello, all, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast, the Gay Gods of Greece edition. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite goddess, and you will not be surprised at all that it is Artemis. If you are new to this podcast channel, welcome. Uh, what I'm going through this month is some short episodes on uh, some stories about gay gods of Greece. Um, and I'm doing that in celebration of Pride Month, but also because I think it's very important that we look at all of the stories in, histories, uh, in history as they were told or as they were known and, um, and share them, even the ones that perhaps are not as popular or not as often discussed. And I've said this before in previous podcasts, while gayness, homosexuality, these kinds of terms, uh, queer queerness was not part of the ancient world lingo or even concept. Um, it is part of our lingo and our concept. And so it's important that we address those stories, uh, although we are using modern language, but we address those stories of, let's say, gender fluidity or the romance, romantic gender fluidity. Eh, I'm trying to find a good sort of a sentence that would embrace what the ancients would have sort of understood. Um, or just love is love is probably pretty good as well. Um, of course, all of these stories are still writ written under patriarchal guidelines and patriarchal structures. And so we have to keep in mind that um, the tone of some of the stories, the editing or retelling of some of the stories over time, things like that are also a reflection of the writers. And of course, all of the writers are male. And therefore, we are we can only look at these stories through the male perspective or through the male gaze. That being said, um, there are some stories that we cannot um, just ignore. And there are a couple about Artemis that I think are particularly fun. Now, I have always felt that Artemis is has definite queer energy. And I think that people in the older days and a few decades ago would say things like she's extremely independent. She likes hanging out with women. She's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of non-gendered, non-gendered behavior to her. Um, all of these terms around Artemis, um, she has autonomy over her body. She's strong. She's a great huntress. She's athletic. All these kinds of words um, around Artemis, I think are words that are complementary to um, the queer experience of people who identify as women. So <laughs> I wanted to tell you a few stories about her relationships and then let you decide. So there, there's nothing that blatantly says this God is gay, particularly around Artemis. There's nothing that blatantly says Artemis is gay, um, but there are moments in which she is intimate with women. And there are moments in which she is raging, raging with women. Um, and there are two uh, of her entourage that I'm going to talk about uh, Iphigenia and Callisto. And they are, I would say her most intimate partners, most intimate friends and most intimate partners. Um, now Artemis has lots and lots and lots of women in her entourage and only women in her entourage. Uh, but uh, these two are worth talking about. And I'm also gonna tell you about Acteon 
the man who dared to enter her entourage uh, of women and sneak up on Artemis herself. So what makes Artemis so interesting? What makes Artemis really interesting, especially as a queer figure, and again, we're reading into this, we are interpreting this, um, but there is room to interpret because like I said, ancient writers would not very rarely blatantly state a romantic relationship as a romantic relationship. Although as we saw last time with Poseidon and Pelops, I mean, that was pretty clear that was a romantic relationship. So there are some times when it's really clear um, and then there's sometimes when it's implied and particularly around women's relationships, because men are writing about men are writing about these relationships, they 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 write very vaguely. They don't call it like women's romance, but they can say that a woman kissed another woman, you know, on the mouth or that a woman was sort of intimately caressing another woman. So there's this kind of language around it, uh, but it's. It's not blatantly said whether whether this is because men did not think about women loving other women in that way or maybe they weren't interested in writing about it or what for whatever reason we have this sort of vague language around it. And so I thought that that was kind of fun. But what makes Artemis unique is that when she's a young um, girl, she sits on Zeus's lap, her father's lap, and she demands she makes demands of him. She's the only child that he has that sits on his lap at an early age and makes demands. And what does she demand? So she demands that she have all of the mountains and all of the wilderness. She demands that she has at least 60 nymphs as her entourage. Uh, she demands that she be unbothered by any man, never married, never go near men, not interested in men, not interested in their politics, not interested in anything. Um, and she demands that she be uh, uh, allowed or that she be free, that she be sovereign over her body, that no one tells her what to do and that there are really no expectations of her. And Zeus says, okay, sure, you can have all of that. So that makes Artemis uniquely positioned to enjoy her life without any male disruption or interruption to constantly be surrounded by women whether as friends or lovers however she likes or however they decide and to live in the wild to live in the wilderness to be in the forest um, to enjoy that sort of freedom that that natural freedom to be in nature so she really sets herself up, and, and this is not necessarily queer, that's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is that there is a, a setup, a demand from an early age that I will live my life as I like, I will live my life in nature, and I will have autonomy over my body, how I use it, what I do with it, who sees it, who I share it with, that kind of stuff. Now we do, we are told that Artem Artemis is an eternal virgin, right, or Parthenos, but virgin, virgin in the ancient Greek world meant many things. Number one, one thing that it meant is that you were never married. So if you were never married, you were considered a virgin. You were considered Parthenos, even if you technically had intimate relationships. Okay. Um, certainly, there's no discussion about how intimacy with other women would quantify or qualify as far as a virginal in your virgin status. Um, later with Christianity, with the Virgin Mary, with other 
development and obsessions really about um, the hymen, right? The biology of virginity, we have a much more constrictive definition of virginity. Uh, virginity also meant a very pious person, a very religious person, a very honorable person would, would have been Parthenos. And so Artemis is certainly very honorable, uh, very committed to her independence, very committed to the wilderness and committed to her entourage, to her nymphs, uh, to the women that surround her and to the women who worship her. So one could argue that Artemis is, is virginal in that way as well. She's a very pious, very um, honorable divinity. So there is something from the beginning of Artemis's life that always, always has fascinated me as one of the most independent, and if not the most independent, and I'll let you argue that if you want in the comments, who is a more independent goddess than Artemis in the Olympic pantheon? Because as I think of all of them, all of them, except maybe for Athena, are attached to a responsibility. Uh, but even Athena is, of course, attached to the responsibility of Athens and, and justice and the courts and the Senate and all that kind of stuff. Artemis has no responsibility. So she lives her life as she likes. And she really breaks the rules of what is expected of women at that time and of goddesses at that time, to be fair. Uh, one could argue that she is in charge of the wilderness, but it's not a charge. It's a it's a passion of hers. It's a choice. It's a, it's a domain of hers. Uh, and so she does protect her own domain. So she's a very independent, sovereign woman that from a young age plans to live only with women and have nothing to do with men, nothing at all. Yeah. We come across her relationship with Iphigenia. I always find her relationship with Iphigenia uh, tantalizingly romantic, okay? So in short, uh, let's talk about Iphigenia in short because it's a bit of a long story, but Iphigenia is the daughter of Agamemnon. Agamemnon is on his way to fight the, Tro the Trojans. Um, while Agamemnon and his army are walk going to Troy, he... There's a couple of stories. He either hunts Artemis's deer, kills a deer, um, or or somehow brags that he can kill a deer better than Artemis herself. Whatever he does with a deer <laughs> or in hunting, um, he offends the goddess. And so she is so upset that she stops the wind from blowing. Again, very much in control of nature. She stops the wind from blowing in their sails and she uh, says through uh, a series of omens um, that she requires a sacrifice for the insult that Agamemnon did to her. And what she requires as a sacrifice is Iphigenia, which is his youngest daughter, his baby girl. And he must sacrifice her to Artemis. Again, when you first hear the story, you go, but Artemis is the protector of women and the protector of young women, especially. So what is she doing with, you know, uh, young Iphigenia? Now, Iphigenia is old enough to be married. So she may be anywhere between 12 to 16 because Agamemnon calls, calls, sends a message to his wife, Clytemestra, who is back home and says, uh, let Iphigenia come to the front, you know, of the army, come to the space where I am and I'm going to marry her off to Achilles. That's what he tells uh, his wife and Iphigenia's mother. 
And so this is a very good match. Achilles is seen as, you know, this great warrior. And so it's a great match for Iphigenia. And so Clytemestra is happy, more or less, to let Iphigenia go to the front of the battlefield. And under this, right, under this promise. And when Iphigenia arrives at the front of the battlefield, of course, Achilles is nowhere in sight. And Agamemnon lies her down on this altar. And you can see it in some of the images. And you can see it in this image here. Uh, and you can see it in this image here. You can Google it and see it in many images. Lies are on this altar. And again, there are varied sources. As he is about to stab her and sacrifice her to the goddess. Imagine your father coming at you with a knife. But anyways, he's about to stab her and sacrifice her to the goddess. There's a couple of versions of the story. One says that at the very last minute before the knife cut Iphigenia's throat, Artemis swooped down and picked her up and replaced her with a deer. There's another one that states that as Iphigenia died on the altar, altar Artemis came down and sort of took her soul, took her essence um, with her to become part of her entourage. So there's a couple of versions of what happens to Iphigenia, but the they all agree that Iphigenia becomes the companion, the, the favorite companion of Artemis. And if you've watched some of my talks on Artemis at Baran, uh, you will know that there is a a um, tomb of Iphigenia, excuse me, at Baran. There is a place where a priestess embodies Iphigenia at Baran, which is just outside of Athens. And there are stories that actually Orestes and Iphigenia, who are brothers and sisters, the children of Agamemnon, came down with a statue of Artemis and established the temple at Baran. So there is a very long and well-known connection between Iphigenia and Artemis. But there is also a very, there, there are intimate implications in the sense that wherever Artemis is, Iphigen often Iphigenia comes along. Sometimes they are said to be so close that they, uh, that they intertwine with each other, uh, that Iphigenia sometimes plays the role of Artemis. Uh, or Artemis relies on Iphigenia to, to take care of all temple duties and 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 take care of all of her needs. And so there is something very um, private and very close about this relationship. And it's a relationship that lasts very, very long. I mean, at the at the Temple of Raron, there is a tomb to Iphigenia. So there are some stories in which she may have died and been buried. There are stories in which she is granted immortality by the goddess. And so the two of them sort of enjoy their time together forever. Um, there are these subtle hints that there is something between Iphigenia and Artemis that is bonded in a way that Artemis is not bonded with her other, the other uh, women in her entourage. And so that story, again, there's no explicit sexual relationship or explicit intimate relationship, but the intimacy between women is very difficult for male writers to pin down. Um, and so I'm not sure that they would have gone on to verify it or, or gone on to ask any further questions. Um, so perhaps uh, there is more to it, but, but we don't have that, that evidence uh, or that primary source evidence. Before I tell you the story of Callisto, which is my favorite story, uh, I'll tell you the story of Actaeon. So many of you are probably familiar with the story, um, Artemis and Actaeon. 
Um, it's it's a really a bloody, gory story. And I think that um, those of you who know it are prepared for what's to come, right? Uh, but if you don't know it, that's all right. Um, the story of Artemis and Acteon are really interesting. I actually read uh, Madeline Miller today, or I don't know when, had um, the story of Artemis and Callisto as myth of the month or myth of the week uh, that she does on her on her website. And I had just read it today, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, as I was reading, she, she mentioned Acteon and the death of Acteon. And as I was reading her interpretation, I realized that she, Madeline Miller, um, must see Artemis as a wrathful, vengeful, um, violent goddess because the the way that she describes uh the fact that poor Acteon is killed for just looking at uh at Artemis accidentally looking at Artemis I kind of chuckled a little bit and I was I, I was like yeah okay poor Acteon uh my interpretation of the story is a little bit different uh because we know that Acteon stumbled upon Artemis bathing in the woods yes but he knew he shouldn't be looking. And yet he climbed the tree and he hid himself and he watched the goddess bathe. And when she caught him, when she heard something cracking or she turned around or whatever she did and she caught him, she was very angry. She was very angry that she had not given her consent uh, for him to be looking at her naked. I mean, he was violating her space, her privacy, and of course her body. And so in her anger, she turns him into a stag. So Acteon is hunting in the woods. He's got his dogs and his buddies and everybody's hunting in the woods together. And he somehow had been separated from the group. And that's how he stumbled upon Artemis. So when she turns around and sees him, he tries to run. And she turns him into a stag, which to be fair, is not the worst uh, transformation. <laughs> uh, but because he's a stag and he starts screaming in his transformation, his dogs are attracted to that noise. And so they attack him. And then his buddies, his hunting buddies join in, uh, you know, driving on the dogs and committing this act of taking down the, the stag, what they see as a stag and tearing him to pieces. And, and so we have this image of Acteon and a deer sound uh trying to explain to his trying to call off his dog trying to tell his friends it's me it's me it's Acteon uh but of course no one knows that it's him and his dogs tear him to pieces while his buddies are uh cheering the dogs on so uh yes this is quite gruesome and yes it is quite um violent but it is definitely uh retributive justice justice and by that I mean um there are consequences to a man's action when he violates the space of a goddess and those consequences are death. Um, now, Artemis doesn't kill everyone, although she does kill quite a few people and hurt and injure others. But Acteon, I think, is a story that is told so often from the horror of the male writers so the male writers are horrified by the act, by the consequences of this action. And so they, they repeatedly tell the story. It's a very famous story. Um, sympathetic to Acteon um, because it, it, it's such a gruesome way to go. Um, but, you know, I think it's a fantastic lesson in consent, right? Um, you know, I mean, Acteon is a peeping Tom and he's, you know, staring and watching a goddess 
taking a bath and he spends a lot of time languishing on her and creeping on her. And uh, yeah, she decides to give him a little bit. So she actually, what's fascinating about the story for me, and I say this all the time, I tell the story. She, because he turn, had turned her into prey, right? He's preying on her. She turns him into prey by becoming a stag. And so I love this turn uh, in the sense of um, instead of being a victim, she makes him into the victim and he faces those consequences. So and the, the to come back to the sort of sort of queerness of, of our topic for today, Artemis does not like men. I mean, I mean, OK, some people say she may like Orion uh, and there's a long story around that. Uh, but. She very other than her brother. And I guess her father a little bit, though he very she very rarely talks to him. But other than her brother, um, Artemis does not suffer men. You know, she's not interested in having conversations and having them around her. Although there are plenty who do raise temples to her, um, so she does have a lot of male worshippers. But she does not like the presence of men around her. Um, she's very much a woman's goddess. So this brings me to my last story of Artemis and Callisto. Now, this story is quite fascinating in, in so many levels. So this story begins with young Callisto, who is this beautiful, beautiful woman who um, decides not to get married or doesn't want to get married. Depends on, there's a few versions of the story, as you can imagine. And so she dedicates herself, she commits herself to the goddess Artemis. And they have a... a what we assume at the beginning to be a very friendly relationship. So she commits her virginity, her body, her, and by virginity, again, I mean, not being with men. Yeah. Uh, not being married, not having children. So she commits herself to be part of Artemis's entourage, to be Artemis's one of her favorite friends. There's lots of stories about the two of them, um, you know, being very, very close. And because she's so beautiful and, you know, youthful and beautiful and all of these things, it's no surprise that Artemis's father, Zeus, is enticed by her and that he decides that he wants to uh, seduce her and all of those things. But but Callisto is not interested in anything to do with men as well. She is she is totally devoted to Artemis. Um, and they, you know, they spend time in the woods together and they hang out together and they do all the things that women do together while in wild in nature. In order to seduce Callisto, Zeus transforms himself into Artemis. And there, there are long, well, semi-long paragraphs in which Artemis, and in which Zeus as Artemis kisses Callisto, touches Callisto, is intimate with Callisto um, before revealing himself as Zeus. So Callisto is very clearly either used to or in love with or prepared to um, be romantic or intimate with Artemis because she participates fully and gladly when Zeus transforms into himself because he had become Artemis so that he can sneak into the woods right and get by Artemis in a sense um Callisto is horrified 
and she doesn't want to be with him and she's screaming and she tries to run and da da da. Anyway, she Zeus rapes her. Um, and in the rape, Callisto becomes pregnant. And she tries, she she realizes she, after the assault, Zeus disappears, of course, and um Callisto realizes that she's pregnant. And um she tries to hide it from Artemis. She knows Artemis is going to be pissed off. So again, there's this sort of, uh, she, you know, scholars tell us it's because she broke her vow to Artemis of virginity and not being with a man, possibly, yeah. Uh, anyways, they're bathing together as they always do. Uh, and at some point while they're bathing together, Artemis realizes that she's pregnant and Artemis flies into a rage. Now, is it a jealous rage? Is it a rage of betrayal? of romantic betrayal or is it a rage of an oath betrayal it is really unclear because we get we get a very short description that artemis um is so enraged that she either hunts or chases or kills again depending on the story callisto and we are told that at the very and pregnant callisto and uh, and that as callisto's dying zeus comes in and he saves the baby the baby's name is arcas he's a boy saves the baby and turns Callisto at the last minute as she's dying into Ursa Major, the constellation Ursa Major. Now, everywhere I've looked, this has been the story, but I'm really fascinated by the Ursa Major connection for a couple of reasons. I just want to tell you for a couple of reasons. Number one, Artemis is often associated with bears and therefore, and sometimes Artemis is called a, a bear the fact that Callisto becomes a bear constellation is really fascinating to me and, and speaks to the bond between Artemis and Callisto, never mind Zeus. So it's like Zeus, we're told that Zeus decides to make her into the bear and turn her into the uh, into the Ursa Major. Now, we have to understand that Ursa Major had been there before the Greeks were ever Greeks. But uh, Ptolemy is the one that maps the earliest constellation and he's one, uh, he's the, one of the Greeks that marks Ursa Major. And so the Greeks really get to create the story about Artemis and Callisto and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, you know, I'm fascinated. And, and, and my gut tells me, and now this is just my gut, not my academic mind, but my gut tells me that the fact that Callisto becomes a bear and the fact of a bear constellation and the fact that Artemis is so associated with bears and that this there's a neolithic or a pre-neolithic connection between bears and mothering um, and bears and protection and like she bears are, are global symbols of nurturing power mothering protection and so I I feel as though Callisto becoming a bear speaks to the depth of the relationship with Artemis the bear, almost like a partnership where Callisto the bear becomes a constellation while Artemis the bear remains, you know, a goddess, let's say in Olympus. Um, now, this last part I'm kind of going with on my own rant. So come with me if you like. Um, but I find it fascinating. I find it disturbing, of course, that Zeus is that Zeus, first of all, as in his usual form, um, rapes another woman. I find it disturbing that Artemis, in her rage, um hurts, kills her lover or Callisto. 
I, so there is something there that, ha, you know, we do have to say that there is, there is such a wrath that Artemis feels that uh, Artemis actually doesn't kill anyone else in her entourage except Callisto, which is kind of interesting. She does kill a few other women though. Um, but I find it, I find the wrath more telling of the relationship, but the most telling, and this is what we have at least uh, historical evidence of or primary source evidence of, is that Zeus knows that the way to seduce Callisto is by becoming Artemis and that Callisto comes so, so willingly to Artemis and in what seems like a really easy seduction and a smooth seduction until she realizes it's Zeus and then she has a whole... Um, anxiety panic attack and and tries to run away so there is definitely something implied here even if it's inadvertently so or unintentionally so there's definitely something implied here that artemis and her nymphs may have engaged in romantic acts and therefore callisto would have seen nothing wrong with this callisto doesn't pull back callisto does not surprised uh callisto sort of melts into artemis and uh and so to me, that is enough uh, primary source data to point towards Artemis's um, queerness, gayness, or lesbianness, uh, whatever word you want to use there. But um, I have very little doubt that Artemis loved some of her nymphs. Very little doubt. And, and I mean if we were to put it in a sort of real people history, I have very little doubt that intimacy happened in the wood in this group. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure that anyone would be, would have been surprised, um, but it didn't make it explicitly in primary source. And so therefore we do not have too much evidence except this moment of Zeus so, so there's like, it's like a moment of romance, but also mixed with like creepiness. Um, so I hope that you have enjoyed this uh, short episode on the goddess Artemis and um, her sort of gay tendencies. Uh, there is a lot of scholarship actually that is being done now uh, by young student, uh, young students, young graduate students. Um, at universities and in other uh, fields of work where they are looking at um, the possibility of uh, particularly Artemis's queerness, which I find really fascinating. And I, I love to read some of their stuff that they're digging through. Again, the primary source is a little more difficult to dig through, but, um, or scarce, actually scarce to dig through. But, um, but I'm really excited to see what the new research uh, may suggest and what new scholars uh, interpretation might be like. So in the meantime, I hope that you're having a fantastic Pride Month. I hope that you went to the Pride Parade if you were here in Toronto or wherever you are. Uh, and remember that while we are doing this um, episode series for the month of June for Pride Month, Pride is every day. I will see you next time when we talk about Apollo. <laughs> Apollo and all of his love affairs. All right. Have a best day. Talk to you guys all next time.